Well, good evening and welcome to you tonight. I trust that some of you will be able to join in live and others, if you watch the, the video later on, that, that God will bless you whether you join in live or not. And so I just trust that these messages are a tremendous blessing to you, are helping you to grow as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I do welcome you as you begin to join in. This has been an exciting series for me. I trust that it's been beneficial to you as well. It's powerful to see Jesus revealed in, in everything in Scripture, in all of the types and shadows, in everything, and how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit perfectly together, and how he fulfills everything to its minutest detail. Hallelujah. And I just I rejoice in that, and I love to be able to, to understand those things and to share them with you. So I trust that you are, are gaining um, important value from these, these sessions that we will be having here. We will be looking at doing some Facebook Live audio um, as well, so you can listen in no matter what you're doing or where you are, and you'll be able to hear the messages. And we'll perhaps continue doing some of these uh, Facebook Live videos as well. So welcome as you begin to join in. Tonight we will conclude this particular series of Facebook Live uh, teachings. And so I trust that you will look forward to joining me again in 2020. Um, we're about to enter our holiday season here in America, no matter where you are. Um, I'm sure you may be celebrating various things as well as this uh, new year, this year begins to draw to a close and we um, prepare for a new year in 2020. And so as the holiday season um, begins to unfold before us, I want everyone to be able to fully enjoy that. I trust that you will all have a blessed Thanksgiving, a blessed um, Christmas holiday, blessed time when we celebrate the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the beauty of how he came to be, his virgin birth, and, and all of the things that, that are so beautiful about his first coming, and why he came was to die for us. And so we'll celebrate that in a few more months in the next year. And um, so I'm looking forward to doing more, more teachings with you, and I trust they'll be of value to you. Let's begin tonight's closing and concluding lesson on the Feast of the Lord um, and how Jesus fulfills those. And I want to begin with prayer. Gracious Father, thank you, Lord, for this series. Thank you for your word, your beautiful book you have given us. I thank you, God, that it does have one author and one central figure, and it all fits together perfectly. And I thank you, Jesus, that every bit of it is fulfilled in you. And God, I thank you that you share more and more of that with us. So I pray tonight that you will feed your people. You will feed us as we feast on your word, as we look at your word and, and take this final uh, biblically mandated annual feast of the Lord in our study tonight. Bless your people, and I pray that you will be with us and you will speak as you desire to us this night. We give you all the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hello and welcome to you, and God bless you for tuning in. And I pray that, as I was mentioning earlier, that this is a blessing to you. We will be concluding this particular series tonight. 
And so, first of all, I just want to take a brief moment to uh, recap this study. The first lesson we covered was um, basically an overview. We, we saw that the uh, chapter Leviticus chapter 23 gives us a, an overview of these mandated feasts of the Lord. Welcome as you join in. And so we looked at that in the first lesson. We also looked at the Sabbath, which God listed among his feasts of the Lord. And we saw some pertinent things in that. We also looked at the, the first annual feast, which is Passover. We went into how that fulfills, uh, Jesus fulfills that by his death on the cross. We talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and how he was the sinless one that went into the grave. We talked about the Feast of First Fruits and how he rose from the dead. We covered that in two lessons. And then we talked a little bit about the um, then we saw the Feast of Pentecost, and following that, we looked at the time period between Pentecost and the fall feast season. We, we studied a little bit about that. And then we began to study the fall feast, and this is the final of the fall feast. We, the fall feast has three feasts to it. The Feast of Trumpets, and we saw how that takes us to understanding a little more about the regathering because it's all about regathering the regathering of believers to the lord jesus christ an event that we as christians many of us believe to be the rapture of the church then last week in the last lesson lesson nine we covered the day of atonement and we saw how jesus fulfills that with his first coming being the lamb being the um, the goat for the Lord that was slain at the cross and whose blood is now applied on the mercy seat in heaven, the true one. And we also saw how the second coming of Jesus will finalize the completion of the Day of Atonement when he will deal with the scapegoat. Now, let's complete this study by focusing on the final annual one. Now, the Jews do have other feasts that they observe. There's Hanukkah, that's coming up in, in December in just a few weeks. There's also Purim, which celebrates the deliverance from when, the, uh, when evil Haman tried to annihilate them in the book of Esther. So there are other feasts of the Lord that, that are feasts that the Jews will celebrate. But in this study, my primarily, primary goal was to study the ones mandated according to Leviticus chapter 23. All right, we talked about the summary of these and we saw how um, each one of these fall feasts represent the coming days, the coming ultimate fulfillment that Jesus is about to bring to pass at his second coming. The seventh and final feast completes the biblical pattern, not only of Jesus' first and second coming, but also of God's total plan of redemption. And we see that in the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus completed every single spring feast on its day. And we do believe that he will do the same with the fall feast. Whether he does or not, when he fulfills them, it will be the ultimate day of that fulfillment. We can't know the exact times of when these will happen, but we are to be rapture ready at any time. We are to be prepared for them and awaiting their fulfillment. The Jewish calendar today is not the same as what it was back in the Bible times when they would actually use the slivers of the moon and the, 
the new moon to determine their feast days. It's preset, similar to our calendars are preset. And you can look up many years in advance. Now you could look up 2025 and when is Passover on 2025 and it's already set up. So it may or may not be completely accurate. And that's why we can say that I believe that Jesus will fulfill them on their day, even though we may have a Jewish calendar now, it may not be the exact day and the exact time. The main thing that we need to understand is that we have to live with an urgency and, and an imminence about his return. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back soon. So let's see what the Feast of Tabernacles is really all about and how Jesus will fulfill this feast. So we will take our text first from Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 44, and it says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day besides the Sabbaths of the Lord besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all of your free, off, free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. And on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. This is still the Feast of Tabernacles he's talking about. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of trees, the boughs and the willows of the brook, excuse me, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. We also find another text about this found in Deuteronomy chapter 16. And it is found in verses beginning in verse 13, and it says, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will surely rejoice. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. 
at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. All right. You also can read some more about this, particularly about the various offerings and things found in Numbers chapter 29, verses 12 through 40. But from all of these, I want to go over a few details we learn. It's a seven-day feast with an eighth-day high Sabbath assembly. The Jewish name for this is Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T, Sukkot. And that simply is the word for booths that was translated booths, B-O-O-T-H-S. This is also known as the Feast of Booths because it, it brings back to their remembrance when they dwelt in the tents, in their encampments, in the wilderness, as God was bringing them through the wilderness. So this is a reminder to them about that. <clears throat> it's also one of the three pilgrimage feasts when they all had to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, and they would read the Psalms of Ascent. And it's interesting because in one of those Psalms of Ascent is Psalm 122, and in that passage, it, it does say in verse 5 and 6, it talks about praying for the peace of Jerusalem. But even before it gets to that point, and that is something we all need to be doing even right now today, I agree with that completely, and we still pray for Jerusalem and for Israel. But in the first four verses, there's excitement in the air. As they are caravanning for these pilgrimage feasts, they're coming in expectation and excitement. And it reminds me, actually, we're fixing to have uh, or we're about to celebrate Thanksgiving here in the United States. And after Thanksgiving, they have major sales. The stores begin their Christmas shopping season with a big deal, big deals and special deals on Black Friday, they call it. And so it reminds me kind of of that because some people will go and spend all night long or all day long waiting and waiting and waiting for doors to open at Black Friday because they're coming expecting, they're excited about it. And it reminds me of that in Psalm 122 verses 1 through 4. There's praise that's waiting. They're excited about going to Jerusalem, especially for this feast, because this is a biblically mandated feast of rejoicing. They are to rejoice before the Lord. It's all about celebration and joy, and delight. Hallelujah. It was the only mandated feast where they were, they were commanded to rejoice before the Lord. Talking about the excitement and the exultation, there were elaborate expressions of joy that occurred with this feast. I can only imagine that the whole person would get into this. Probably one of the greatest images or pictures we can glean from scripture to associate with this kind of joy was when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. That He danced around wildly. He danced in celebration. He didn't care who watched him. He was excited because the ark of God, the ark that represented the presence of God that he longed for and that he missed was coming back to his city, Jerusalem. It was coming home. And so David was exuberant about that. And he expressed elaborate 
tremendous praise and worship, and it was loud, and it was boisterous, and he was celebrating wildly. That's the kind of joy that this feast um, can bring out. That's the kind that God intended, I believe. I believe this is what God had in mind for this feast completely, because in its ultimate fulfillment, which we will talk about tonight, it will represent the living ark of God, the living presence of God coming to his city and establishing his kingship there. Hallelujah. That offering, special offerings that were required there, listed, those are listed for you in Numbers 29. It's interesting that they had 13 bulls that they started with on day one, and then they, they reduced it by one bull each day until they had seven on the final day. People would participate in this special worship celebration by bringing free will offerings as they desired. And they also um, were to bring a special item that the Jews called the lulav. It was the fruit of those bountiful trees. It was um, pretty much four things that they, they bring and they would, they would wave them like palm branches. In essence, when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, and they were celebrating him with palm branches and proclaiming the messianic cry from Psalm 118 that said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were crying out, Hosanna, save now, Hosanna. They were, in essence, previewing for us the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. They had the right idea. The king was entering his city. They just had the timing wrong. But they are going to, that's when we're going to celebrate with him. And palm branches and other things were a part of that celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. There were some primary points in its observance. The one powerful one was the water drawing ceremony. And this is spoken of in John chapter 7. And we're going to turn there in just a moment. In John chapter 7, Jesus is speaking. This is happening in the Feast of Tabernacles, this passage. And so Jesus uses it as a teaching opportunity. And he begins teaching them about this water drawing ceremony and what it's really all about. They would, the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam and he would draw out water and there would be a, a nice procession as he would go back up and take it into the temple and he would pour it out before the Lord in a special ceremony. Of, and there was great rejoicing of this. They believed that this came from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which talks about how they will draw water from the wells of salvation with joy. So Jesus interprets this and shows them its real meaning. And so I'd like to read a little bit of that right now. In, um, in John chapter 7, verse 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And it says this, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. And then we go on down, and it says in verse 2, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And then he goes on and he talks about how his brothers even and some of his family didn't believe him. But we know that this is occurring at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then if you go over to verse 37, 
It says this, now remember this was a seven day feast with an eighth day sacred assembly. And he says this, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he tells us that the, this water drawing ceremony and the living waters that they believed were in that pool of Siloam, the clear, clean, fresh, living waters from the pool of Siloam, represent the coming of the Holy Spirit and the living waters that he brings and will flow into us and through us. So that's what this is all about. The water drawing ceremony is beautiful, a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit and his work. Also associated with this was a, a great degree of illumination of light. They would have great, they would have eight great candelabras like big old lampstands that were erected in the court of the women, and they kept them lit every day of tabernacles. And so these would blaze and shine forth and light up the whole city. It's a reminder of God's Shekinah glory, the glory cloud that filled the temple in Solomon's day and that will fill the temple again when Jesus comes. He will be the light of that city. His glorious presence will give the light. There was great rejoicing, lots of music and dancing in the streets and time of great joy and celebration. And they would also wave the lulav, that, that uh, four item um, branch or whatever that was bound together, that item that they would make of those four things that were commanded in Leviticus 23. And they would take it and wave it before the Lord in celebration and in honor of him. They was, would also build booths or these little huts, tent-like structures, and dwell in those for that week. This were, like I said, reminding them of the wilderness journey as they went to the promised land and how during that time they were utterly dependent on God for their every need, and God didn't disappoint. He came through for them. Now, in a minute, we'll talk a, a little bit about another passage in the New Testament where Peter had the right idea at the wrong time, and so we'll hopefully get a little more understanding about that as well. This feast was at the end of all the harvest. It was the final harvest cycle and it primarily represented the fruit and the figs and the pomegranates and all the other crops that they would grow in the land. Now let's talk about some biblical connections to this Feast of Tabernacles. It was going on and it happened at the dedication of Solomon's temple. How beautiful that the connection with Solomon at the dedication of his temple is correlated with this Feast of Tabernacles and looking at it, especially with its final fulfillment, when Jesus, the living ark, 
the glory cloud of the presence of God is going to come into the eternal temple, the millennial temple that will be built. Hallelujah. So Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 and in 2 Chronicles 6, we read about Solomon's dedication of the temple that he had built. It was celebrated at the Feast of Tabernacles and the whole feast was during this time. There's powerful prophetic implications here that tie to this tabernacles, the ultimate fulfillment of this feast. Hallelujah. Now, another thing that may have happened, and various people have differences of opinions about the birth of Jesus Christ, but it's very possible that he was born at the Feast of Tabernacles and not in December. That's not a point of division. It doesn't matter. We can celebrate it whenever we want to. And I can celebrate it with people in the Feast of Tabernacles time period. I can celebrate it with people in December and around what we, set, we call Christmas Day. Because the main point is that we are giving Christ honor. We are recognizing his coming and we are giving him honor for coming. We are remembering his birth and why he came, and we're celebrating that. So it's nothing to argue about, but the word, when John used the word in John chapter 1, verse 14, and he said that he came and he dwelt among us, it literally means tabernacled among us. So it does suggest the Feast of Tabernacles. It may have been the um, initial fulfillment of that during his, the time of his birth, but the ultimate fulfillment will be when he comes again the second time. Tabernacles is all about Jesus coming and ushering in his kingdom. His first coming may have been on that day. We don't know. But we do know that ultimately it represents his second coming when he comes as king and he begins to set up his kingdom. Tabernacles points us to the millennial kingdom and the millennial reign of Christ. It's interesting to note that we can see that when we look at the, the two kings, the two primary kings of the United Kingdom. Saul was rejected, remember, but David and Solomon both show us pictures of Jesus in many, many ways. And Solomon definitely points us to the coming kingdom. Remember, David's reign was, was much of war, but Solomon's reign was a time of peace, and the coming millennial kingdom will be a time of peace when Jesus reigns on earth, and he will be the one that will institute real peace on earth. Hallelujah. Now, let's talk about Jesus' second coming. We know that the Feast of Trumpets, we talked about that, seems to represent the rapture of the church, regathering of the believers to him. And then the Day of Atonement shows us when he comes back in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 15, how he will go to his people and he will, will ransom the Jewish people, the remnant, and all Israel will be saved as is prophesied. And he's also going to, um, I believe, deal with that scapegoat uh, and bring a final end to the devil. Um, we're told that in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. 
Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Then later, after the thousand year reign of Christ, he will be released for a season, but then he will be permanently expelled to the lake of fire. So the Feast of Tabernacles will begin in earnest in its fulfillment at Christ's second coming. After he has defeated his enemies, completed the Day of Atonement, then his kingdom will be ushered in. He will be coronated as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will be coronated as King, as Messiah King. He will enter Jerusalem and take up his throne. If you'll remember, we're about to celebrate Christmas. And in the, in the message that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary, he told Mary that he would be the one that would take up the throne of David. He's the only one worthy and rightfully due the throne of David. So he will take up his throne. He will usher in his reign of peace and he will enter the temple that he is building, that millennial temple. He will sit in the most holy place. He is the living ark of the covenant. He's the living ark. He's the living mercy seat. And he will sit in his true home, in his city, among his people there. And we will be there. All of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, all of those who believed on Jesus, we will be there with him, ruling and reigning with him, the scriptures teach us. Teaches us that we will be serving him. We will be honoring him. We will be excited and rejoicing in that feast, in that ultimate feast. It will be a time of great joy for all of us, I believe. I want to turn back to a passage from 1 Kings chapter 10. And I know that we're um, beginning to, to get late on our time. I don't want to belabor this point, but I do have a few more points that I want to bring out to you that I believe are important. And this is one of them. This is taken from, the, from one episode in King Solomon's reign. And it's beautiful how we can see some pictures that correlate between King Solomon's reign and the coming reign of Christ. Matter of fact, there's a scripture in the Ecclesiastes that says what has been is what will be. So we're able to see what, what is from the scripture in the past or things that have been represented or told to us or happened in the past and glean from those images and projections of what we can expect to happen in the future. And I believe this may be one of them that's, that's similar. I'd like to read 1 Kings chapter 10, and I want to read the first nine verses. And it says this, now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, it was a true report 
which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men and happy are your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. This is one passage from the, from the time of Solomon that I believe will be repeated in some ways when we have the reign of Jesus Christ on his throne, the throne of David in Jerusalem. Hallelujah. I believe that the Queen of Sheba's visit is something similar to what some of us may be experiencing on that day. It may even be, in some ways, a prophetic type of what will come. And I believe that maybe every one of us will utter the, some of the same words she said when she said, the half has not been told me. The beauty, the splendor, the glory of his presence, the glory of his wisdom, the justice and righteousness that he will institute in the coming kingdom, in the messianic kingdom, I believe we may say the same thing she said. We couldn't even have imagined half of this. The half has not even been told to me. And notice that she also pointed out how his servants were happy. Happy. They were joyous. They weren't slaves. They weren't um, laborious and, and tired and weary and, and hating their work. They were joyous. They were excited about serving their king. Hallelujah. What a day that will be. There was great excitement and great rejoicing and great contentment. Hallelujah. And I believe it will be the same, the same when Jesus returns. Hallelujah. Also, we see that during the millennial reign, this is the one feast that the scriptures tell us specifically will continue. And, and as a matter of fact, if people do not come to it, there's a, there's a uh, curse upon them. There's, there's a um, consequence to that. I'd like to read that in Zechariah chapter 14. In verse 16, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And he goes on and he, he uh, specifies that. So there is a consequence and a punishment if people don't come and keep this feast. This is a very important feast and it represents to us the time of the coming kingdom of Jesus and everyone will be celebrating it on that day or they will be um, experiencing the consequences of not coming. It is going to be a blast 
it's going to be a great time of celebration with Jesus. Hallelujah. I'd like to end with one final um, passage from Scripture, and hopefully this will shed some light on tying this all together, but also on an often misunderstood and misinterpreted experience that Jesus and the three in his inner circles shared. And we're going to read it from Matthew chapter 17. First thing, though, I'd like to begin reading this passage from Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. Jesus is speaking here in verse 28, and he says these words, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, that was misinterpreted, and some people in the early church in the first century thought that when John the Baptist died, that that, that was it, that they missed it or something because, because of that scripture. They expected the Lord's coming kingdom to happen before John died because John was the last apostle that lived. He, he outlived the others. Well, that's not true because of, first of all, chapter 17, which we're going to see uh, briefly and explain. But also, John was the apostle that got the book of Revelation. So he did see the coming kingdom. He saw it prophetically. He saw it in its ultimate fulfillment when it will come to pass. Okay, so this scripture was in fact fulfilled and has been. But let's begin now in chapter 17, verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, the same John we were just speaking of, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And I want to stop for just a moment. What was happening there was the veil of his flesh was actually just being peeled back to reveal the glory that was inside. He was, he was concealed inside the veil of the flesh, so to speak. And yet he was the glory of God, his glorious presence. And so what's happening here is they're getting a peek. They're getting a peek at the true glory of God standing before them in the presence of Jesus. Hallelujah. And behold, verse 3, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And then he brings them down the mountain and he, he gives them more of a lesson about Elijah. He's asked, well, isn't Elijah coming? And what's all that about Elijah coming? And so he explains all of that. So he uses this. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus being unveiled 
perhaps even in the millennial kingdom. I believe that's exactly what this is representing. Now, there's a lot of things that could be taught about just what we just read, those few verses. But right now, I want to focus on what Peter said, because a lot of people have misunderstood this. Peter was not offering idolatry. He was not saying anything idolatrous or to enshrine them in any way. And I think that sometimes, because we've not understood the Hebraic and Jewish connection that the scriptures have one with another, the Old Testament and the New Testament, for instance, we've misinterpreted that and we've not fully understood that. What <clears throat> Peter was not making that kind of comment here, all right? We have to understand what Jesus had just told them a few days before this event happens. He just told them that there were some standing there that would still get to live to see the coming of the Lord in his kingdom. So he's giving them a sneak peek, a picture on the mountain about that when he is unveiled before them and his true glory shines through. So because these were Jewish men, they understood that the Feast of Tabernacles represented the coming of the kingdom of the King of Kings, of the Messiah. So they were putting two and two together, so to speak, and trying to make that connection. So in essence, Peter is saying, oh, well, it's time for the kingdom. The kingdom has come. That's what he's thinking. He didn't understand that the kingdom wasn't yet, it wasn't time for the fulfillment of it. But in his mind, he knew that the Feast of Tabernacles represents and patterns for us the coming of Messiah's kingdom. So he's thinking that it's now being fulfilled. Moses and Elijah are here. They are two of the main um, characters to the Jews representing the law and the prophets. And so Peter is interpreting this as if it was time for the coming kingdom. That's what he's thinking. He thinks that now the kingdom that's been promised through the Old Testament scriptures, through the Hebrew scriptures, is now coming to pass. And he knows that that's the Feast of Tabernacles that represents it. So Peter is thinking, he's offering, now you have to understand that in Jewish culture, man, uh, hospitality is mandated. So Peter is offering to build their tents. Remember, they had to build booths to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So Peter's offering to build those for him, for them, for all three of them. In essence, Peter is saying, don't worry about building your booths. Let me do that for each of you. I will gladly build your tents, your encampments, your Sukkot for the feast on your behalf because it's tabernacles time. It's time for the kingdom. Now, Peter got part of it right. He understood the Feast of Tabernacles was representing the coming king. And he understood that Jesus was the Messiah who would be fulfilling that coming kingdom. But he had the timing wrong. And so God quickly corrected him and Jesus helped him and used him, used this as a teaching time to help him understand. Hallelujah. So the last point I want to make about the Feast of Tabernacles 
is that it represented the fruit harvest. It was the final harvest. It was when all, it's also called the Feast of Ingathering because all the fruits and all the crops are now gathered in. It's the final harvest cycle. And it represents the fruit harvest. And that's interesting because we bear fruit for him. As a matter of fact, his desire is that we bear much fruit. Jesus said that in John chapter 15. And he said that we should bear much fruit because it glorifies God. So this Feast of Tabernacles has many elements that speak to us. Hallelujah. And through all of these feasts that are recorded in Leviticus chapter 23, we see the complete picture of the work of Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. We see the full plan of redemption played out before us in these feasts from when he would come as the Passover lamb and die and give his life's blood for the sin of the world so that we who will apply the blood to, our, to the doorposts of our heart are saved and rescued and protected. Hallelujah. From that feast all the way through the coming kingdom, we have seen and we've looked at how it fulfills. It's all fulfilled in Jesus, and it completes the whole plan of redemption. And it's beautiful how all of this is represented in these feasts of the Lord. One of the greatest things I want to leave you with about the feasts of the Lord is this. Every one of them show us and focus in for us the importance of relationship that God has and wants to have with us, with me, and with you. He went to great lengths to bring it to pass. He loves us. And he longs to be in sweet ship with us. May you experience that intimate relationship with Yeshua, with Jesus, our Messiah. That sweet fellowship with him in relationship. Because that's what he died to bring you into and to bring me into. Praise God. May you be blessed through this study. We will plan to do more series, hopefully coming in early 2020, hopefully by maybe uh, February or so. And we may, do, we may do some as video, some as live audio, but I hope you will join in. And God has more and more and more that he wants us to study together and to talk about because he loves you. And he wants you to understand what he has said in his word and be blessed by it and grow in him as a disciple of the Lord. Let me pray with you as we close up this series. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to bring this to those who have chosen to participate and to listen in. I pray that as a servant of the Lord, you have been able to use me to speak words on your behalf. And I pray that the Holy Spirit of God will take each one of these lessons and will seal, seal them in the hearts of the people. You will speak to them, and you will show them what you will through this series. I pray for blessings upon them. I pray in Jesus' name that those who have not yet entered a beautiful relationship with you will come to know you, Jesus, as their own personal Lord and Savior. 
And I pray that those who are in relationship with you will grow deeper and closer to you through this and other series and other times in your word. And so, God, we give it to you, and I ask you to be glorified through it all. Bless your people. Keep them safe and sound. And join us back together at your will, in Jesus' name, in your timing. And we trust you, Father. Bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I have thoroughly enjoyed doing this, and I look forward to another opportunity to share God's word with you. And I trust that God will speak to us again, even in then, in that time period as well. And we will grow closer to the Lord at all times. In Jesus' name, may you be blessed.